We're going to take a look at each one of these stories, each one of these journeys that leads you to Bethlehem, and you're going to find some common threads, right? That each uh, individual, each person, each couple, they're, they're searching for something, right? They're specifically searching um, for something that has led them or is leading them to Jesus. <coughs> and we find that um, in every one of these stories. And, and hopefully, my, my, my uh, intention by going through a series like this is that by looking at what they're searching for and looking at the roads that they're traveling down, we have things that we can extract from their experiences and apply to our own. And uh, one of the common themes that you'll see in every one of these is this theme of hope, that no matter what road you're going down, um, as we think about the hope candle today, uh, Bethlehem is a place where you find hope. And today's story in particular, I think, is going to show us how you find hope even in the midst of a difficult path or a difficult road. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, and what we see there in accordance to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 1. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn uh, to the gospel of Luke chapter 1. We're going to read this story, um, and then we're just going to kind of break it down and use it as a way to kind of apply it to our own journey to Bethlehem. <coughs> so starting in verse 5. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron, and both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. And once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Well, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. This is the first biblical account of the game of charades. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. And in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Okay, uh, this is a, a very powerful story, and it's really only the first half of it. We're not going to look at all of it. I would encourage you, 
Later today, later this week, go back and read the rest of chapter one and see Zechariah's song and the birth of John the Baptist. But it's interesting that Luke's narrative starts here uh, with the story related to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And uh, one of the things that I would say in the midst of all this is that uh, Luke has taken a, a wider perspective or a bigger perspective on how Jesus's birth was really brought into the story of Israel. And he has, he has chosen a particular instance to include in a reference point that really speaks to a very dramatic introduction to the gospel. In fact, one of the, the commentators that I was reading about this particular story would say, you, you, it's hard to imagine a more dramatic context for this gospel to come into. Um, and, and the way in which it's orchestrated and written to help communicate to the audience that this is not some kind of random offshoot of Israel. This isn't some kind of out of the, the you know, the blue sort of uh, prophecy or, or development of a, of a miraculous birth, that this is like right in the middle of these ancient practices of Israel, right? It's right at the heart of it. And, and so it's a very dramatic portrayal. And, and I want to talk about the road that Elizabeth and Zechariah are on, and I think for us to appreciate it and to see the sort of hope that they were trying to, to cling to and the way in which God used this on their own journey to, to Bethlehem is to understand the significance and, and the dramatic nature of what is unfolding here. And, and so I'm not gonna necessarily work through this uh, verse or this passage line by line, verse by verse, but we're gonna look at a lot of it and kind of move around a little bit. And so the first thing I would call your attention to that speaks to the dramatic nature of this is just the, the reputation and the character of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the people that are involved. If you look at verse 6, it says, Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Like, that's a remarkable description, right? To say, these folks, these two right here, they were righteous in the eyes of God. They followed all the decrees blamelessly. I mean, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're it. They're the cream of the crop. Like, if you're doing a whole Bible drill competition, they're the schoolyard pick number one. Like, we're taking Zechariah, we're taking Elizabeth. These folks know what they're doing. They, they have such a remarkable reputation. Imagine being described in the Scripture as blameless, all right? And so that in and of itself should capture our attention to a certain degree. These folks have a very strong reputation, and it's not just the reputation. They have a, a deep heritage connected to the priestly line. All right, if you look back up at verse 5, it says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So if you were to go back to 1 Chronicles 24, I believe, you have the Old Testament description and explanation to the divisions of the priestly line. And I think it's verse 8 or 9 or 9 or 10 in there, you'll see a reference to the division of Abijah, right? And that's where Ze Zechariah is tracing his lineage. And you go back to 1 Chronicles 24, and it has this detailed explanation in terms of why these divisions were put into place. And one of the summaries is, is that these divisions... Uh, of these priests would follow the decrees and the commands that were given to Aaron and the instructions that were given to Aaron, which is a reminder that Aaron was really the first priest, right? This was all established with him, this priestly line. And so Luke goes out of the way to say Zechariah is the priest from this division, this division of Abijah, and he's married to Elizabeth, who's also a descendant of Aaron. So this is a strong priestly heritage, okay? And so you've got this blameless, righteous couple, they, they have this incredible responsibility and this incredible heritage of the priestly line. And at this point in time, right, not only do you have this, 
this strong reputation that adds to the drama of the moment, or of, of the scripture, but you have a very dramatic moment that they're about to step into. Verses 9 and 10, or excuse me, 8 and 9, says, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God, and he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So this is how it worked. <coughs> excuse me. Each division uh, was entrusted to serve in the temple for one week, twice a year. There are about 24 divisions. Of, of priestly lines. And so your division, your, your group, you were entrusted to serve in the temple for at least one week, twice a year, and then there were additional responsibilities related to the festivals and the feasts that you would have to serve potentially. And that's how they covered the year. And so that was always kind of an important part, right? You only had to do this twice a year. So the fact that it's his division and it's their turn to serve in the temple on this particular day adds some significance to him. But if you were a priest in any of these divisions, you only got to go in and offer service of incense one time your entire life. That's it. And, and it was determined by casting lots, so it was random. It wasn't like you could plan for it or, or prepare for it. It was truly like this, this once-in-a-lifetime moment that has now been offered to Zechariah. He gets to go in and offer this incense. I mean, this is the moment that his priestly career, so to speak, has been all pointing towards. Like, this is the climactic moment. There's, there's no, sorry, can't do it today, haven't been feeling well, got a cough, sorry, got to go pick up the kids from school. Like, this is it. And, and, and this is a very, very climactic moment and an incredible responsibility for an incredible man, apparently. He's getting to go in there and burn incense. And so already, that in and of itself speaks to the ancient roots and practices of Israel that, that give this particular moment some high level of significance. But it's almost like God says, well, that's, that's not enough, right? I don't just want it to be at the temple. I don't want it just to be with this blameless priestly man. I don't want it just to be in this particular situation in his once in a lifetime. I'm going to add to the significance of it. I'm going to send an angel. So an angel is a part of this discussion as well. Right? And so anytime an angel appears, you know that there's another weight of significance and drama. Look at how it's described in, in, in the setting with which Zechariah meets this angel. Verse 11 says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Um, when, I, when I read that, I always kind of have to stop and, and think about it for a little bit. Because to me, I don't know if you're the same startled and gripped with fear don't always have the same weight like when i hear the word startled i think i'm just kind of surprised like oh i didn't know you were you were there um gripped with fear feels like hey someone's in the house go hide in the closet you know like a totally different emotion and when you study this in in the original language startled has this this sense of a deep profound emotion of fear and so i just i want to point that out because i want you to understand how he feels in this moment. This is a terrifying moment, right? He's gripped with fear, which is common for almost every biblical occurrence when an angel appears to someone. It's always, almost typically, a response of fear, and one of the first words the angels tend to say is what? Fear not. Don't be afraid. And so here's this incredible moment, once in a lifetime, and all of a sudden an angel appears. He's He's consumed with fear, and, and then he hears the message. And the message from the angel is this last piece that makes it such a dramatic and profound moment. Let's revisit it. The angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will hear, uh, or will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. 
He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. I love that. That is remarkable. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit, in the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What a message. Like, do you, do you feel the drama and the significance of this moment, right? Here you have this blameless priest in this once-in-a-lifetime moment encountering an angel who comes and says, you're going to bear a son who's going to have the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He's going to turn the hearts of his people and the spirit of Elijah and bring people back and prepare them for the Lord. What a remarkable moment that Zechariah gets to be a part of. And what does he say? He says, how can I be sure? What would you have said? And I, I can't help but read this and think if that was me, right, if this was us, wouldn't you respond with an incredible amount of enthusiasm, excitement, and joy, of awe? And Zechariah looks at the angel and says, how can I be sure? He doubts. Now, this is a very different response, though it sounds similar to the response that Mary offers the angel, right? Mary um, sees the angel and she says, how can this be? And, and her question there is really more about a, a question of curiosity. How is this going to happen? I'm a virgin. I don't have a husband. Like, how am I going to become uh, pregnant with child? And the answer is, this is going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. So Mary's question is rooted more in confusion, curiosity. Zechariah's is absolutely rooted in doubt. He's essentially saying, I need more. I need a sign. Like, I, I know that this is... This once-in-a-lifetime moment, I know there are people gathered around praying outside for this. I know you're an angel. I know I'm here in the temple. I know I'm of a priestly line, but I need more. How do I know that I can trust this? So he's, he's doubting. And we know that he's doubting because of Gabriel's response. Gabriel's like, I'm Gabriel. Like, I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news and now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words. All right, so it is uh, uh, now a burden that he has to carry from this moment on where he can't speak until John is born, which you read about later in chapter one, and it's all rooted in doubt. And so my question for us this morning is why? Why was that his response? What was that rooted in? You know, we've talked a lot about doubt before, dedicated a whole series to it not too long ago, and part of what we've tried to foster and cultivate here is that it's okay to have doubts, and I would, I would stand by that again. Right? Like, like, doubts are a natural part of the faith journey. You're gonna have questions about God, and that's okay. That's a good thing, and churches should be a place and a safe place for you to ask those questions about God. You're going to wrestle with things, and I would often tell you that it is in the wrestling that your faith can be sharpened and refined. So it's okay to have doubt. Like that's, that's, that's absolutely permissible and in some ways like received well here because we know that that's a natural part of it and we wanna walk through that with all of us. But what I would tell you is that there's a tipping point, right? Like there's, there's a threshold 
that we can cross with our doubts that becomes somewhat problematic. And, and Zechariah has crossed that threshold. Right? The, the threshold in my mind is that if we're not careful with those doubts, if we don't know how to cultivate them or respond to them or steward them well, it leads us to a place where we become blind to the hand of God. Right? He is literally in the temple as a priest standing before an angel hearing an incredible message and he still can't see it. He's blinded to all that God is doing and he still needs more from God. Is that you? What road are you on right now when we think about our road to Bethlehem, our journey to Jesus? Would you say you're in a place where it's become increasingly difficult to recognize the hand of God? Do you find yourself constantly asking, God, I, I need more. How can I be sure? Have those doubts or those questions that you have carried, have they, have they crossed a threshold to where it feels like you just can't see what he's doing at all and you're blinded to it? Maybe you're on such a journey today. Maybe you've been on one in the past. Maybe that's on the horizon and in the future for you. The question that I think is meaningful for us, if we're going to take this Advent season with a certain intentionality, if we're going to take our own road to Bethlehem, is we need to ask ourselves, how do we navigate those difficult roads? How do we navigate those moments where we can't really see God? And I think the way that we can better understand that is by asking ourselves, what caused Zechariah to say this? Where is this coming from? And what I would argue and what I want to present to you today is that I really think that this question is not really coming from a place of skepticism, right? Like where he's like, I just don't know if there really is a God, that kind of thing. I think this is a question rooted in pain. I think it's a question that's rooted in, in a wound and it hurts. And so here's, here's why I would make that argument. In these passages, these verses in this passage are a little bit more subtle. Let me point them out to you. Verse 7. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. And then even in the midst of Gabriel's first announcement to Zechariah, he says, your prayer has been heard. And he's referencing a specific prayer, right? A specific prayer that Zechariah has been praying for, and we know that that prayer was for them to have a son. Your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth will have a son. What we know while it's very little and while we don't know all the details about the journey for Zechariah and Elizabeth is that their journey and their road was one where they wanted a son. They wanted a child. And they couldn't have one. And they had been wanting it for many years. And I'm here to suggest to you today that I think that had caused a pretty significant wound and pain that led to Zechariah responding the way that he did when this message came to him. And I want to share that I guess, conclusion with you or perspective with you by offering a word of testimony in my own life because while I would be the first to confess um, that there's no way my story, Jennifer's and mine's story, comes anywhere close to Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? I mean, nobody's ever going to call us blameless. Um, we're not of a priestly line. Um, and, and I would imagine they responded to this journey in a much more um, pious and devout way than we ever did, and I'm sure that it was much longer and, and much more challenging. But that being said, it is a journey that I have walked down with my wife. And because we've walked down it, we have a certain familiarity with the sort of pain that it can create. 
And so I want to share with you just a little bit of word of testimony of that pain. And, and what my hope is, is that we can all learn from it because though we may have different journeys, some of you have walked similar journeys, right, of wanting to have a child, praying for a child and it not happening. But even if that's not your specific journey, many of us have walked down roads that have created a certain pain that have made it hard for us to see the hand of God. And I want to learn from that. That's, that's, that's what I think we can learn from this story today. And so uh, it started for us, we were probably married uh, maybe just two years, I think, when Jennifer came to me and said, hey, I think I'm ready for us to, to start a family. And uh, I wasn't initially. I was thinking, man, hey, we're living in California. We can go travel any weekend that we want to. This whole Jen and Jer thing is kind of nice. Let's not close the chapter on that one too soon, you know? Um, and so it took me some time to kind of get behind it, but we thought and prayed and talked about it and agreed, yeah, let's go ahead. You know, having a family would be great. And, and so I don't know how many of you have had similar uh, stories, but what I can tell you is that if you're like us, whenever you come to that point in your life and you make a decision, you have this kind of common assumption that it's going to happen very easily and very quickly. And, and you just kind of think, okay, well, this will be, you know, no, no problem whatsoever. And, and when it doesn't happen quickly and easily, for whatever reason, either you just don't get pregnant, or maybe it's pregnancies that lead to miscarriages or whatever the, the issue, uh, when it doesn't happen quickly and easily, the first thing you feel is it's very disorienting. Um, you, you don't really understand why, right? And it, it's kind of this paradigm shift that begins to take place in your mind, you're, you're going, okay, what, what's, going, what's going on here? And you're surrounded by people that know maybe that you're going on this journey, friends, family, they'll say, well, don't worry, sometimes it takes a while, it'll, it'll happen. And so you try not to worry, but it's, it's disorienting. And at some point in that, that journey of it being disorienting, it, it moves into a concern. And, and you begin to wonder, is, is there something wrong? Is there something that we are unaware of? And so that's where in our day and age, of course, I don't think it was obviously available to Zechariah and Elizabeth, you can go and, and consult uh, doctors and medical experts and get some greater insight and data. And so when we entered that part of the journey, the answers that we kept getting was that it was unexplained. <laughs> we don't know why. And in some ways, that was a relief for us because there was still hope, maybe. Um, may maybe it can still happen. We don't know why it's not happening, but in many ways it was also really difficult because it just felt arbitrary and we wanted something that we could point to. We we're like, well, if, if there is like a conclusion or a reason, maybe that'll help us know to either close the book on it and move on, or it's going to help us know what intervention we can take, whatever it is. So unexplained was, was hard and, and those concerns only continued and we lived in it for about two and a half years. And I can tell you that it was two of the hardest years of my life and probably our marriage. And I, I want to explain to you why that journey of wanting a child, praying for a child, experiencing this label of childlessness can be so painful, okay? And to help us better understand maybe what Zechariah has gone through and, and then to apply that pain possibly to other roads that you all have been on. The first thing that I would say, and there are numerous elements to this, but these are just the few that I'll share with you today, is that it's really hard to want something that you don't get to experience and watch everyone else get to. 
That was one of the first things that made it really difficult. I had so many memories and do have so many memories of us ending up in the living room of our friend's apartment or house or wherever, and they would announce, hey, we're pregnant. And as much as we wanted to be happy for them in those moments, every single time it felt like a punch to the gut. Every single time. And those created such conflicting emotions because you did love these people and you were genuinely happy for them, but you didn't, you didn't really feel it. And then you're trapped in this very difficult social situation where you have to present that you're happy when everything on the inside is in pain. And, and you don't really know how to navigate that. But every single time we heard that someone else was getting to have a child, someone else, it came easily. It was hard for us. And that was, had to be true for Zechariah and Elizabeth. How many times? Did they have conversations with friends or family or loved ones that said, we're, we're pregnant? How many births did they have to go to? How many times did they have to see balloons pop with pink and blue confetti? You know what I mean? Like, it's hard. And it's not specific to just wanting a child. How many of you have been on roads that you wanted something and it didn't happen for you the way it's happened for others and you were constantly reminded of what other people have that you've always wanted for? Maybe it's a spouse. Now, you, you just long to be married. And over and over again, you've been surrounded by people that got engaged. So many weddings that you've gone to, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Or how many times you've looked around and you've thought, I would really love to have parents that love me like that. A dad that's available. Right, a mom that could be there for me. All my friends have it, but I don't. How many of you have longed for um, any sort of success in career or development, you just see everyone else get it, everyone else have those opportunities, and you just continually feel defeated. It's hard. It creates a wound. Which leads to the second dynamic that made it pretty painful, uh, which is when you get to, to see so many other people experience it, you begin to feel less than about yourself. Um, just to put it Bluntly, I felt defective as a person, really as a human. Like we, we would read Genesis and it's almost like embedded into God's design, right? That, that you're supposed to have children. It's part of why he created you. Be fruitful, fill the earth, multiply. And when you're surrounded by all these other people, men and women that can and you can't, you begin to feel like you're less than. I felt like less of a man. I think Jennifer, it's safe to say, felt like less of a woman. And that becomes a really difficult emotion and feeling to carry, right? Because you, you begin to, if you're not careful, and you begin to have those moments and those feelings, uh, it can kind of consume you, and it becomes too heavy of a burden to carry. And it begins to be woven into not just a, a moment or a certain experience, but an identity. And it's just kind of how you see yourself, right? And so again, maybe it's not related to having children. Whatever road that you're on could be very different. But have you ever gone through seasons where you've just felt less than, right? You, you weren't smart enough, pretty enough, capable enough, talented enough, or whatever. And you, everywhere you look, you feel less than and by carrying that weight, it has begun to work its way into a sense of identity for yourself. It's very difficult. 
But here's where it became especially difficult for us, or for me, I guess I would say, is when you are on a particular road and you're feeling that sort of pain, right? You're feeling those sorts of wounds. It becomes incredibly difficult when you feel like God is the reason. And that's how I felt, right? Because I looked at it and I thought, I I know what I believe. God's the author of life. Right, if I believe Psalm 139, that all these days were ordained for us before one of them come to be, that he knits us together in our mother's womb, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, I know that in a moment he could make us pregnant like that. And he won't. He felt like the reason. And so we would pray over and over and over again. And it's one thing for God to say no to a prayer. It feels very different when he's saying no and no and no, and no, over and over and over again. When you find yourself in that sort of a dynamic in relationship with God, what I began to experience was kind of two different emotions. One was I began to question if he was even there or if he even cared. And then the second was, is he really good? And let me explain that to you. Because When you pray for this over and over again, like we were on this journey where we always had some level of hope, well, maybe maybe this will be the time. Maybe now it will happen for us. And he just kept saying no. You begin to wonder, God, I'm praying for this. Are you even really listening? Are you really out there? Do you really hear the prayers of your people? You can't help but feel that way. And, And if you choose to continue to believe that he's there, as we did and as I did, You can't help but have moments and days, some really hard, bad days, where you question his goodness. Right? If you are there and you're not doing this, why? Like, you would have some really difficult moments. I'll never forget one time, Jennifer telling me, we were really deep into this uh, journey, and she was serving as an ER nurse, and she took care of a 16-year-old girl that came in that day who was pregnant and already had a couple of kids and was just opening up and saying, I just, I don't want a child. And I don't know that I can explain to you the emotional toll that it puts on a person who wants so deeply to have a child, hear someone else say, I don't. Like my wife would have given anything to be in her shoes. And when you experience that, you go, God, why would you give a child to someone that doesn't want one and not to people who have been praying for it? And when your prayers like when it's something that you, you know you don't feel like it's selfish, right? I mean, we're sitting there like, God, it's not like we're praying for a million dollars and fame and fortune. We want a kid. It's what you design. Why would you not do this? You begin to question his goodness. And that becomes very painful. And it feels like God's the one inflicting the pain. Because I remember somewhere along the way in that journey, my prayers changed. Like, it, was, it hurts so much on such a consistent basis that it was really no longer, hey, God, give us a child. It was really, can you please take this pain away? Like, like, I'm tired of feeling this way. Could you please help me not have to keep watching my wife weep? Could you please help us not have to carry this burden? And week after week, month after month, day after day, it was like the answer was, no. Here's a little more, more pain. And it felt like God was the reason. You ever been on such a road? 
or you've been carrying a certain level of pain and you go to the Lord over and over, God, take this pain away, and he won't, and he doesn't. It hurts. It creates a wound. And I think that's where Zechariah was. And I think he had chosen to continue to believe. But I think that wound was deep enough that here they were in this moment. And that sort of pain, and it didn't matter how dramatic and high cl how climatic of a moment it was, it didn't matter that it was Gabriel himself. He said, you're going to have a child. And that wound was so deep, Zechariah said, are you sure? My heart can't handle one more letdown. I need a sign. I think that's where this question's coming from. So what do we do when the road that we're traveling is filled with that sort of pain that we become blinded to the hand of God? How do we navigate that? Well, we don't have anything specific in this particular story that tells us how Zechariah handled it. We know the fruit of it. We know where it leads. And so I'll offer just a testimony in terms of what I feel like the Lord taught me through our journey. Hope that it encourages you. And then we'll conclude with where it led for Zechariah and Elizabeth. But what I would encourage you is that if you're on that road, <clears throat> or you've been on that road, or you're sitting there today and you're like, well, I don't, I don't really have that kind of experience, I would tell you, you're likely going to at some point. And so if you haven't had it yet, or you're having it now, or it's in the past, I would encourage you to cling to these words, right? These, these lessons that at least the Lord, I think, helped me use as a foundation in my life. The first is this, and I've said this to you before, but I mean it. God has a plan, and it is not yours. And the more we can embrace that and recognize that, that he does have a plan, he is in control, and it's just not our own. <laughs> He's the hero of the story, not us. Right? It's not about our wants, our dreams, our wishes, our desires. It's about his glory. He has a plan, and it is not ours. And so what happens a lot of times when we go down these roads that are filled with those sorts of wounds is it's helping us loosen our grip on our own plans. It helps loosen our grip on the things of the world and to trust his. Here's the second thing that we have to keep in mind is that we were designed and created in his image to reveal his glory no matter what road you're on. Whatever road that you're on to Bethlehem, I assure you, is going to be filled with peaks and valleys, joys and sorrows, comfort and pain. And regardless of whatever befalls you, your response, your task, you were designed to reflect the image of God on that road. And so if it's joy, then you point to Jesus. You point to the Lord. If it's sorrow, if it's pain, if it's suffering, God has given us the gospel that infuses meaning into that suffering and that sorrow. He says this is not pointless. This isn't wasted. It can be used to shape you and refine you and bring glory to who I am by the way in which you navigate, right? I would tell you that, that, that all of that points to kind of this, this third point that I think is so critical in understanding it is that when you go through a road like that and you feel that kind of pain and you feel like God's the source, you are inevitably going to have 
moments where you begin to question his existence. You're going to be praying out Psalm 13. Psalm 13 never came to life more for me than in that season. How long, O Lord, will you forget me and hide your face from me? And when you're in that season where you feel like you're forgotten and he's hiding and you're dealing with that pain, here's what you're going to be tempted to do. You're going to be tempted to either run from him or press into him. Right? Either turn your back on this journey to Bethlehem or keep going. This road's too hard. And I don't know why it was this way for me and this way for Jennifer, but every single time we, we got to those sorts of moments and had those sorts of days, we pressed in. We just kept trusting. And there were days I prayed prayers of intense anger at my God. <laughs> but I kept praying. And so when you find yourself on that road, I beg you, I plead, always press in. What it does is it shapes your faith, right? It, it shapes your trust. Hebrews 11 shows us this incredible hall of fame of faith. And in so many people, it says at the end that lived this way, that went through roads of suffering and all these different challenges, and they still didn't receive what was promised before they died. <laughs> it is a faithfulness that we carry to the grave. But what the scriptures teach us, as Paul says in Romans, is that we know that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. <laughs> and so you maintain, but you keep pressing in. And you keep trusting. And when we finally got the news that we were pregnant, I was overwhelmed with emotions. We cried. And one of the first thoughts I had was, I wouldn't change a thing. I'm so glad he took me down this road. And we had a chance to reflect on it earlier this morning in the Rich class. And even now, looking back, man, he, there was a reason <laughs> that I couldn't see. And, and that is the reason we, we press in and we trust. And so let me, let me conclude with what I think that fosters in God's people, the hope that begins to be put on display when we live in such a way. And this, I think, is found in Elizabeth's response. I'll conclude with this. After she's pregnant and remains in seclusion, her response says, the Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and has taken away my disgrace among the people. Man, I love that answer. See, what it does when we live this way, when we trust in his plan, right, when we are committed to reflecting his image, no matter what circumstances come our way, and we keep pressing in, even when we don't understand it, even to the point of death, our lives become songs of praise and declaration, a praise that sounds a lot like Elizabeth's. And notice the difference. Like if you went and continued to read chapter one, you'd see Zechariah's song and the praise that he offers. So like they both remained faithful. They both pressed in and their life became a love song of praise to who God is. And her song here has such a great summarization of what that life of worship looks like. She starts by saying, the Lord has done this, right? You move from not being able to see his hand to seeing his hand everywhere. The Lord is at work, right? His, his hand is everywhere. I can see what he has done. And I pray that for each and every one of you, whether you're on a difficult road or not, that through this Advent season, you would live a life of such hope that constantly proclaims to the world and the people around you that you can see what God has done. You see his hand. You haven't lost sight of it. And I love this second phrase. 
that he has shown his favor. Uh, when you look at that in the original language, you know what it means? It means he's noticed you. <laughs> he cares for you. He's concerned for you. Right? It's not always just that he's given you what you've wanted. Showing his favor literally means he's noticed. And I cannot stress that enough. If you happen to be on a road and in a season that you don't see his hand, you wonder if he's there, you're questioning his character, his goodness, whatever it is, can I remind you, he absolutely has not forgotten you. He notices you. He sees you. He's concerned for you. Our God is not some distant, vengeful, spiteful God. He is a loving Father. And sometimes fathers have to tell their children no. Sometimes fathers have to let their children go through pain so that they can grow into the, the children that he wants them to be. He notices you. No, no one leave here today thinking God has forgotten you. He sees you. He loves you. He's concerned for you. And her last statement, he has taken away my disgrace among the people. That, that phrase, taken away, means it's completely done away with. It's gone. Right? This disgrace, this shame, this embarrassment that Elizabeth had felt, she says now, he's removed it. Is this not the gospel? This is why this theme is so appropriate for us, church. Because what I know is that regardless of what road you're on, regardless of what your experience with pain and heartache might be, whether it's present in the past or in the future, that every single one of us that are willing to travel the road to Bethlehem are going to encounter the same hope that Elizabeth has just demonstrated. Because when you come upon the manger scene, you see the Lord's hand. You see the Lord at work. You see an outpouring of his presence, of the miraculous, of the divine coming and dwelling among us. You see that he has noticed us, that he has heard our cries, he's heard our prayers, and says, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to be Emmanuel, God, with you. And when you begin to see why he comes, that the whole reason this birth it ever takes place, the reason the star shines in the sky is because ultimately Jesus came to die, to give his life as a ransom for many, for you, for me to hang on the cross and that by the spilling out of his blood, he washes us, he cleanses us, he takes away our sin and our shame. And he removes our disgrace. <laughs> and that with the empty tomb, we have a hope of all hopes. That whether we fully get to experience all these prayers being answered or this pain being removed in this life, or, or not, what we know is that death doesn't win. And that there will be a day where all of that sin, all of that shame, all of that disgrace, all of that death is forever removed and taken away, and we get to experience the fullness of Emmanuel, God, with us. That's our hope. And that's why the road to Bethlehem is worth traveling down. And so whatever that road looks like for you, I would encourage you, keep moving forward. Because what awaits you in Bethlehem is the Christ child. It's the place where all your hopes, all of your fears are met in him.
and it is there with Christ that you find what your heart truly is searching for and what your heart truly needs, the everlasting light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we're so grateful. God, grateful for hard roads. Grateful for pain. God, anything that, that allows us to come to you in greater desperation and greater longing, God, that can shape us and mold us and refine us, we are grateful. And so, God, I don't know what everyone's going through in this room today. God, but for anyone that is here, that is on a road and they're feeling that sort of weight, that sort of burden where it's been hard for them to know that you're there, hard for them to see your hand, hard for them to, to trust in what you're doing. God, I pray that your spirit would speak to them in this moment like you never have before. And just tell them that you love them. Let them know deep within their hearts that they have not escaped your notice. That you care for them and you're walking with them and you're leading them down this road. Give them the hope that comes with Advent. God, for those of us that have walked such journeys before, let us look back and learn and be strengthened that we can continue these journeys. God, that maybe for those of us that have pain waiting around the corner for whatever path that we're on, let us take this moment and be reminded and strengthened and equipped for what may be on the horizon. May we always press in. May we always continue to take one step at a time towards Bethlehem that we might find Jesus and see your hand, see that you care for us, that you love us, and that you are here to dwell with us and take away our sin and shame. God, we thank you for that. May our life be a life of praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.